it's very easy to fall into those kind of negative emotions of anger, resentment, focusing on the things that were done to you. Man, I was inhumanely kicked around like we were nothing, all to win and score some political points, right? That's And all of that is ac- very accurate and very true, but it's completely outside of our control. Welcome to The One Up Project. Money is fuel that, that allows you to do things. It doesn't need to be taboo. What you don't want to do is wake up at 65 realising you did something you hated and have regret. Go and find people who will give you advice for nothing. This is a space for personal growth and money chat with new perspectives every Monday. This bit of content, listening to this, is going to be a small little breadcrumb of something that makes them think a little bit differently. For all the things we were never taught but should have been. At the end of the day, the most important person is yourself. And if you're not happy with your own choices, then you're never going to be happy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The One Up Project. Before I introduce you to Abbas and we have what was one of my favorite conversations in quite a while, I wanted to give you a small summary or at least an attempt of a summary of his book. So Abbas is the author of a book I recently read called After the Tampa. It's a memoir of his experience fleeing Afghanistan to seek asylum in Australia. Eventually, became New Zealand, Christchurch, New Zealand, with over 400 other people on the boat at the same time. The experience takes us on an extremely intense and scary journey following Abbas's family's escape from Afghanistan to Indonesia, where they hopped on a boat, the Palapa, I think, I believe it was called, that practically drowned. Uh, They were, you know, fearing that they were going to die, only to be rescued by a cargo ship named the Tampa, where they were put in some truly inhumane circumstances as a result of Australia's reluctance to host any more refugees. I had a notes at page in my phone a mile long while reading this. I think that the way a bus has written about his experience is truly admirable and I it was one of those episodes for me that I wanted to do I wanted to do it justice I wanted to do a really good job so I was extremely nervous Um, so I hope that I did do a good job and you enjoy it and you get a lot of value out of it because I definitely did and I'm so grateful to him for giving us his time so much of it that I took as well um, it was a real honor to be able to interview him and have him on this podcast so I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts everyone let's get into it I wanted to welcome Abbas Nazari to the podcast today um, I recently read Abbas's book called After the Tampa which I'm going to leave a link to below and I would have given you a little intro into what it was about before this episode started and some insight and some context around the things I'm about to ask him because hopefully and undeniably it probably will get a little bit vulnerable and um, it will be a very raw insight into Abbas's journey so far so the book has made a massive impact on me I loved reading it it's probably been one of my favorite books I've read for quite a while and that's why I was so so keen to have him on the podcast I'm so grateful that he's given us his time today so Abbas thank you for being here it's seriously a privilege to have you on the show how are you today? Uh, good morning, Sarah. Uh, thanks so much for having me on uh, the One Up podcast. Um, you know, it's crazy. That book came out a little over 18 months ago, and it's still still doing the rounds, still, you know, getting past, you know, from friend to friend. And so I'm just amazed that, uh, you know, people are still interested and always, always glad to, to share my story with you guys. Mm, it's like so appreciated because 
it is such a, for most of us, especially those of us growing up in like a Western society where we've had a, a lot of that, you know, privilege and that resource. Um, it is such an incredible story. And like I said, I've given some context to what it's about in the intro, but I wanted to touch firstly on something you mentioned um, when you were first, you and your family were first uh, looking to move outside of Afghanistan, you said you had more excitement than fear to get out of the horrible place you were in. And I guess to give some context about me when I was reading this book, I was, you know, every time I was reading it, it was usually at night and I was like just like winding down and relaxing, which I don't know if this would be a wind down and relax book, but it was <laughs> really had my mind going and I had my phone next to me the whole time. And so all of these kind of questions of, or thoughts have been written as I was reading it and just thinking about it. And so when you said you had more excitement than fear to get out of the horrible place you were in, my mind went straight to how does a seven-year-old, you know, the age you were at the time, conceptualize what that danger was around them? Like what did you recognize as being that horrible place? That's a really good starting point. You know, <clears throat> I was a little kid at the time. When I look back on the journey that we had from leaving our little village in Afghanistan to, you know, eventually after after months on the road being resettled to New Zealand. When I look at that entire journey from the starting point to the finish line, uh, to me, um, it just seemed like an, a really one big, long adventure, you know, from packing up our life, to going on the back of trucks, to border crossings, to living in foreign countries, to being out in the open ocean, to eventually arriving in little old Christchurch in New Zealand. Because of how young I was, I was I just saw the whole thing as one big journey, one big trip and adventure that I was going on with my family. I was aware of my physical surroundings. I was aware that we were in different places and foreign faces and languages and names and different weather and different fruits and strange looking things. But I guess because of how young I was, thankfully, my age meant that I was perhaps shielded away from some of that, uh, you know, raw trauma that a lot of parents and a lot of older folk carry with them when they are uprooted and they have to leave and settle elsewhere. So for me, like I say in that book, you know, when dad told us that, look, tomorrow's your last day at school, you know, where we're packing up, we're leaving our village, we're just going to get out of the country because, you know, the Taliban are coming up you know, close by. I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know what it meant for our country politically. I didn't know what it meant for our family and our security and what it meant for our life of packing up our home and just going somewhere. Um, it's only in hindsight when I was writing the book, and really reflecting on our journey and, you know, during lockdown 2020, which is when I wrote the book, so we had a lot of time for reflection, um, that I realized the gravity of what we went through. And that's why the book has kind of resonated with a lot of people, because it is written in that kind of emotive first, first person account. Uh, and I interviewed quite a lot of people and try to get their perspectives on it, too. You found out much of what was happening outside of the Tampa once you were in Mangere and like you kind of had that information given to you because when you were on the Tampa, there was just no way that you really had any clue what was going on. And so it seemed to me that you would have developed this knowledge over time and that's when it would have set in. But you mentioning that when you... Uh, were writing the book that's when you kind of realized the the gravity of what you'd gone through so was that 
a gradual kind of understanding for you and collecting of information over time as to all the political circumstances outside of this as well? Or was it at the time of writing the book, that's when all of those details became clear? Yeah, we were definitely kind of uh, vaguely aware indirectly of what was going on during the time when we were held off um, offshore by, by the Australian authorities. Mm. Um, but it's only in hindsight, and for me personally, mostly during the writing process for the book, that I really kind of started unpacking the layers, you know, the media, media coverage, the political conversations that were going on, the actual political advice that was going around Canberra, as well as uh, looking back at some of the kind of back and forth on, on talkback radio and all of that kind of conversation around irregular migration and refugees and asylum seekers. So at the time when we were right in the middle of the maelstrom, no, we weren't really fully aware of it. It's only in hindsight that the whole picture become uh, become pretty clear. In saying that, I think whenever I, I mentioned the Tampa to, um, to New Zealanders and Kiwis, People of our generation probably have no idea who, what it was. An older generation who, you know, watching the news at the time, they'll remember it vaguely. And they'll be like, oh, I remember there was something going on about a boat and some Afghan asylum seekers. But whenever I mention it in Australia, you know, or, almost every hand in the room goes up because a lot of Aussies remember it. And they remember mm-hmm. it vividly because it was such a turning point in Australian political history. Um, to give you the 30-second version of it, basically... You know, we were rescued in late August 2001 by this Norwegian container ship. And this container ship was going to drop us off at Christmas Island, which is an offshore territory of Australia. Now, as we near closer to Christmas Island, the Australian Coast Guard, under the orders of the Australian Prime Minister's office, you know, tells the captain of the Tampa to say, turn around, Australia is closed which goes against every kind of legal norm that there is, right? If you're a vessel that's just rescued people out of the sea, you have every right to go to the nearest port to drop people off, right? That just makes sense. But what was happening behind the scenes was that Australia was in the middle of a 2001 hotly contested national general election. And Prime Minister John Howard, who was the Prime Minister at the time, he was trailing slightly in the polls. And come election day in November, he might be out of a job. So here was an opportunity for him to kind of stoke the voting base a little bit to kind of try and win some of that very uh, ultra conservative nationalistic vote. And so he gets up in Parliament and says, look, these illegals, these aliens, these foreigners, they're not welcome in Australia. They don't have Australian values, so on and so on. They're a national security threat, which works brilliantly. And he'd go on to win the election at the time. And in the middle of all that, New Zealand says, look, stuff all that, we'll take them. You know, we'll take on about 150 of them. And that was us. So that was me and my family and a few others. And so that was a turning point in my life. Now, many Kiwis weren't even aware of all of this stuff happening, let alone many Australians. It was all just big front page spectacle with a lot going on. And so when I've written my book and kind of said, hey, this was our perspective during the whole thing. Then a lot of people said, man, I had no idea. I remember it, but now I can kind of place myself in your shoes on the deck of the Tampa in the middle of the ocean. Mm. It's almost scary to think about the contrast of experience that can happen when the media is reporting on something or, you know, you have one experience that's so massively, um, I guess, yeah, shown 
to the world versus the other experience that hasn't been shown at all. And it made me think when I was reading this, just how many things like this happen that you never get the full story on, which I would assume is almost everything that happens ever because, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it just seems to be the way uh, with trying to get the truth about things. Like the truth is contextual and there's always different elements of things going on. And when I was reading this part of the book, I was, and even now I can like feel it, like something sitting within me, just like an emotion. I don't even know what it is. And I don't even know how to reconcile like the emotion I felt Mm -hmm. reading this book, which almost feels unfair and ridiculous because I couldn't even imagine how you and your family, the other families and the other individuals Mm. felt and reconciled that at the time. And so like, how, what did you feel inside of you when you were putting those details together, especially in regards to the actions of the ex-Oz PM, John Howard? Like how have you began to overcome that understanding? Yeah, and that's a really good question. I'll um, allow me a couple of minutes to go answer it. Mm-hmm. I guess first and foremost, the way I think about it is um, if you just kind of break down the word refugee, um, from the outside, you know, you look at a refugee and uh, the first thing that kind of sadly comes to mind is a lot of negative stuff, you know, that they're helpless, that they need to be handheld and spoon-fed, that they're always in need of support and you know, they're in a kind of a deficit, right? And to be honest, to some extent, that's pretty true. You know, refugees, when they leave a war-torn country and they be resettled elsewhere, you know, they do need help, right? And that's very accurate. That was our case. There's no element of, of there is a real element of truth to that. But sadly, that, that label sticks and it's very, very sticky, right? Refugees will always, regardless of how many years they've been living in uh, their adopted homelands like me, Sadly, whenever you say, oh, you're a refugee, wow, are you okay? You must be so-and-so and are you all right and all this stuff. What I mean by that is after a while, the word refugee, uh, the negative connotations that are attached to that, you either accept it and say, yep, I'm helpless and I need help and it's all tough and all the rest of it, or you flip it around and say, man, I went through some excruciating traumas. I went through some terrible dramas and ordeals that the vast majority of the public will just never understand. So that's not, that that could either be a point where you say, you know, poor me, I've gone through all of this stuff. Or you say, man, I'm so grateful I went through all of those traumas because I'm now a stronger person for it. So to answer your question, you know, I... I don't look at myself as a victim of all of the stuff that was thrown our way, the obstacles, the political traumas that were dealt with, the challenges of finding ourselves and being resettled in a new country and learning the culture and the language and the customs and, you know, being in state housing and and having to be spoon fed and handheld every step of the way. Those are all formative experiences for me that has made me and my family and my community even stronger for it. So, again, to answer your question, I think on the one hand, you have the choice to look at yourself as perhaps a victim of your own circumstance and think, man, this is a tough gig. I've been dealt a poor hand and I'm just going to have to live with it. Or you say on the flip side of that, man, this is an incredible source of strength. I'm kind of glad I went through those traumas because I've come out on the other end even stronger for it. So that's how I look at it. Uh, The word refugee 
can be negative, but it really depends on how you look at it. And for me, my family, my community, the rest of the Tampa refugees who resettled to New Zealand, we're incredibly proud of where we come from. You know, Afghanistan is often sadly in the news for the wrong reasons. There are elements of our culture and our history that we're proud of and we celebrate and we continue to hold on to. But we're also incredibly proud of what we've built and the community that we've kind of put together in New Zealand. And that's equally as impressive, right? So that's what I choose to focus on. And if you pick that same principle, you can apply that everywhere in business, in your relationships, in your health, in whatever kind of pursuit you want to put to you say, damn, you know, have I been dealt a poor hand? Probably. But is that how I'm going to look at it? Or am I just going to have to look at it the other way around? Mm. Yeah, it's it's a very admirable mindset, obviously, because it takes a lot of, well, I guess you almost in many ways don't have a choice because you almost have to decide that I'm going to make this a reason for my strength rather than for my mental health ruin, really. Mm. But how mm. does forgiveness play into that? Not only for, you know, people like, the ex PM or the people who treated you the way they did when they came onto the boat, but even people now who maybe apply their biases to you and other refugees, mm. like how does forgiveness play into that experience? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, thankfully, like I, and I can only speak for myself. I can't speak to other members of the community and other refugees generally. So everything I say is from just from my own personal perspective. Um, Thankfully, I don't dwell on the opinions of others all that often. Like, I definitely listen. I kind of take it on board. But in terms of the impact that it has for me, um, it doesn't. I don't really hold it all that heavily or close to my heart. So what I mean by that is the stuff that happened to us, for example, you know, with us just kind of being a political football in a bigger game that we didn't even understand. Uh, it's not something that I carry with me like a, a piece of resentment that I'm just like, damn, man, I'm, I'm incredibly angry or resentful at our treatment. What I look back on is like how incredible that we were one of the lucky few to be given a chance at resettlement in New Zealand, to be given um, basically a fresh a blank slate and, and a fresh start and look at how much we've built in the last 20 years, right? So it all just comes down to a matter of perspective. Do you choose to dwell on the fact that, you know, the Taliban took over your country and you became refugees and you became helpless and you had to flee or you became a political football for weeks on end in the middle of the ocean or that <clears throat> once you arrived to New Zealand, you had to pick yourself up from literally square one, you know, just learn the language, get accustomed to a new culture and a new tradition and a new country entirely. You know, do you choose to focus on all of those struggles and most of which are actually out of your control? You have zero control over those things. Or do you choose to focus on the things that are within your control? You know, things that you've done. So look, look, we came here with nothing. We learned the language. We built businesses. We went, got educated. And now we're part and parcel of New Zealand society. So, again, without sounding cliche or anything like that, <clears throat> it's very easy to fall into those kind of negative emotions of anger, resentment, and just, you know, focusing on the things that were done to you, man, I was, 
I was rejected from coming to Australia. We were mistreated. We were, you know, inhumanely kicked around like we were nothing all to win and score some political points, right? That's And all of that is ac- very accurate and very true, but it's completely outside of our control. We couldn't affect anything at the time. So what's the point of wasting your perspective, your energy, your time and, or, you know, who you are as a person on that, which was out of your control, rather than just focusing on the things within your control. So again, it sounds very cliche, but once I've wrapped my head around that and said, look, just focus on the things within your control, the image that you can build right now, the person that you can become right now, the impact that you can have on your community right now, then it becomes much, much easier to deal with. Mm. Because those kind of negativities will always be around, right? People's opinions or people's biases or... You know, for example, just take refugees generally, right? <clears throat> like I said before, the notion of refugees is still pretty negative, right? That these guys aren't going to fit well into New Zealand culture, that they don't have much to contribute, that they can't speak English, that there might be social issues that they have a hard time navigating, all of that stuff, all of which is kind of at least partially true. So, but then you look at me, right? And if you hear me without seeing my face, you think, man, that guy... It's just a regular kid just grew up in New Zealand, right? I mean, look at where I come from. So it's my job now to kind of change the perspectives of people. And to be honest, I'm not going to do that to everybody. There'll be some people who are hardwired and just bloody hate refugees, right? (laughs) Quote, unquote. Um, And then there are others who listen to me and think, man, I had no idea, but I'm glad I listened, you know? And that that is incredibly powerful and I'm privileged to be in that position. Mm. Yeah, you're exactly right that it's, it's the harder choice to take to not fall into the trap of those negative emotions. It's a harder choice to decide that you're mm. going to use this as like fuel for something better for yourself yeah. and for strength. And it sounds yeah. like you've done that. It's had to be a very conscious choice. Like how, mm. as you were kind of learning that that's what you wanted to do, were you actually going through in your mind you know, I have a choice here. I'm either going to do this or that. Like, how did you work through that? Um, it definitely didn't just come overnight. Like, yep, I'm done. Mm. I flicked the switch. It's just come from over time and maturing as a person. Um, I feel like the younger you are, uh, you know, the easier it is to just kind of tap into that, you know, reactive instinct of anger and rejection and all of that stuff. But as I've matured and, you know, I'm now 28, turning 29 soon, um, it's definitely takes time and practice. Um, where I am right now is, you know, I've got, a, I wouldn't say I'm a, I definitely don't have my blue check on Instagram, so I'm not a celebrity or anything right there. I'm not paying for it, goddammit, Zuck has enough money. But, I, you know, I do have a bit of a profile, right? So on the one hand, when I'm when I'm speaking, you know, people automatically, even when I say I don't speak for a community, people automatically assume that, you know, a bus is speaking for all refugees or for all Afghans or whatever. So whenever I say something, I'm very mindful that my words can be misrepresented. And so even if I'm speaking personally, if I say I'm angry at something, then people will just tap into that and say, oh, this guy, you know, all bloody refugees are angry at this and that, right? Mm. So... I have to be very careful about what I say and how I say it uh, simply because people will assume I'm speaking for a community. The other part about it is 
just you know there's a little test that i use every now and then like um without going into detail right now i'm just currently in negotiations for uh you know just in some commercial negotiations and it's it's getting bloody heated right and there's some things i want to say over text or over a phone call but what i do is i type it out in an email exactly how i'd say it with anger exactly the way i do it and i'll just sit there put it in that draft folder and i'll just hover the mouse on the words on the on the send button on the click button and just hover it and just say look am i willing to send this reread it again and then try and imagine yourself on the receiving end of that email saying would this help the negotiations or is this going to completely torpedo the whole thing right so then mm-hmm. i just say okay think about it let it sit for a while it's exactly the same with communication right a lot of us whenever we see a angry message or a caption or a comment or something on our socials very easy quick react send share and then it just blows up into something completely out of control and so for me it just takes time and incredible patience and there'll be many times where i didn't i press send on that email you know it's definitely blown back up in my face so it's just about being like okay hold on if i received something like this either to my face or over a phone call or over text or email would i be happy about it would it bring me back to the table or would it me go even more defensive Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example, right? When I was writing the draft, the first draft of my book, um, so I wrote it during lockdown 2020. We were in uh, Washington, D.C. I was there on a Fulbright scholarship at Georgetown. The whole world went into lockdown, right? What a time. What a time. Everyone else learned to like um, juggle and bake bread and all the good stuff. So I, I wrote a book, so I feel far more elite than everybody else. Uh, like you should. <laughs> <laughs> Um, by the way, people who don't know me, people who listen to this podcast must think I'm just an absolute arrogant prick. <laughs> I kind of am, but hopefully the humor does cut through a little bit. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I was writing this book during lockdown and the first draft of it, which took me about four or five months, the first draft of it, I sent through the publishers and they said, you sound really angry. I said, interesting. Okay, now I'm going to read it with that in mind. And it was so true. Every word in there was me just pointing the finger at like all the Australian government, the, the Taliban, you know, the refugee agencies, basically everyone who kind of did us dirty along the way, right? I was just angry. I was just like, you racist Australians, this, that, and the other. And to be honest, I probably had every right to be angry, right? Mm-hmm. I had every right to be angry. And if I wanted to write a book like this, then it's my words, let me write it the way I want to write it. But then I kept thinking to myself, what is the whole point of writing this book? Mm-hmm. Is it to tell our story and do it genuinely? Or is it to tell our story, do it genuinely, and maybe I can convince some people who are perhaps anti-refugee or on the border or on the fence about where they sit when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers, maybe I can convince a few of them to come over and understand it from my perspective. So once I realized actually the power of the story is in maybe those people who don't know enough or who maybe just being ignorant a little bit, if I write this book, they read it and a few of them just come back to me and say, man, Abbas, I had no idea. I've learned so much. Then I've done my job. And so the second edition and the third and fourth drafts of this book are vastly different to the first. I'm less angry. But in saying that, what I've done with the book is that it's brought a lot of people over to my side. And um, I think that goes back to your question about 
do you choose to tap into those negative emotions or just kind of listen in, take it all on board and maybe change tack a little bit? Mm. Wow, you're really speaking to me on so many different levels and I'll start with it's interesting that you talk about how when you wrote the book the initial version was very angry because I remember when I was reading it I consciously thought to myself wow this is such a calm recollection of these events and you come across at least came across to me like very unbiased I suppose is the way to describe it where you just said it as it was and even though it was still you know inhumane and horrible and upsetting to read it wasn't like it didn't feel emotional it felt very much like this was the reality of the experience Mm. and Mm. yeah take that as you as you will and yeah it must be an incredibly frustrating thing for people and I know that this is sort of a theme across many different communities especially marginalized communities where they're having to monitor the way they communicate their own experience for the benefit of someone else's like lack of understanding their own bias or their own Mm. whatever it is and it's only like it only makes sense that someone would feel anger about that or upset about that because they've had to say do all this work to get to a certain point then they're trying to educate people you know you're trying to educate people but now you've got to be sort of conscious about how you educate these people so that when you're not pushing them away but you're still and you're still giving them an opportunity to learn without like kind of triggering their emotional response which is such a difficult thing for an individual to do like for you emotionally for you to be able to do and I admire it so 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 much that you are so completely intentional with the way that you've written the book and with the way that Mm. even you're talking now I can tell you're very intentional with your words you pick the words that are meant for the audience to properly and Mm. accurately explain the experience and the way that's going to help people understand why it's important and like what the power of the story is. Um, And I think just that skill set in itself, that ability that you have should be like recognized as its own thing because that is pretty amazing. Thanks. I think you tap into something that's very, very powerful here. And I'll give you two examples, right? Going back to the first draft of the book, I imagined if that draft were then on the shelves of bookstores across Australia, rural Queensland, middle of nowhere, Australia, small towns here and there. And someone who might have voted uh, for John Howard in the 01 election, if they picked it up and read it, they'd probably be like, you know what? I'm glad I voted for Howard because stuff these guys, this guy's just bloody angry. He doesn't get it from my perspective and so on. So I wouldn't have convinced anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and as has happened, the version of the book that's currently out there in the market, I've had dozens of messages from people across Australia, you know, from far north Queensland to Ballarat, Victoria, to small towns here and there, people who've read it, people for who voted for Howard, people who got sucked into the media hype of the time thinking, holy crap, literally messages saying, hey, Abbas, a friend of mine just sent me a book. I read it. I had no idea this was going on. Thank you for kind of opening up my eyes and I'm kind of sorry about the state of Australia right now. I have dozens and dozens of those messages on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook message requests, all the rest of it. And 
it shows the power of you know for of of me kind of messaging uh, my words very very well because that's had so much more impact. Another really quick example is I was in I was in Washington D.C. right in the heart of the United States Capitol, just you know a few blocks down the road from the White House, from August 2019 till August 2021. If you think of that two year time span, we had the last six months of Trump. Then we had the, um, the 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 lockdowns, March 2020 lockdowns, in the middle of which we had that civil unrest and the massive riots that just kind of burned entire cities of uh, America to the ground. And then you had the pre-election, you had the election itself and the post-election dramas. So that two years that I was in the United States, I felt like I was watching decades of civil unrest and history unfold. It was incredible. I was there... And I was so glad I had a New Zealand passport that if shit hit the fan, I could just jump on a plane and get out of there, right? But I was watching history unfold in all its beauty and all its ugliness at once, right there in the heart of the capital where obviously things, uh, you know, reach uh, a boiling point. And in that time, I saw so many reactions. And I apologize, this story will wrap up. In the middle of all that, I saw so many reactions of people just kind of emotionally just not listening one bit to one another, right? DC is probably the most liberal city in the United States. It voted like 90-something percent Democrat every election. And they are probably from the far left, the most liberal city you can get. And people are just shouting and screaming about how everyone who voted Republican and everyone who even identifies as not Democrat, regardless of where they live, are fascists and racists and, and just un-American. And then you'd have on the other side, you know, the Trump supporters who'd come in and and view the people who weren't on their side as exactly the same thing, un-American, you know, racist, etc., etc., and so forth. And if you think about it, if I come up to your face just shouting, man, your views are racist, you're a fascist, etc., is my reaction, is your reaction going to be, oh my God, I had no idea. Thank you so much for enlightening me. I'm, I had no idea I was a racist. Thank you. Is that going to be the reaction you're going to get? Or is that person going to dig their heels in even more and say, no, you're the wrong one? So long story short, I saw in America how just kind of being blind to other people's opinions and thinking my way or the highway, the absolutism with which people And I'm going to say it's on both sides of the spectrum, particularly on the left, the absolutism with which people speak with, right? It's incredibly dangerous. And so there is an art form and a lot of patience required when it comes to getting your message across, but doing it where you're authentic to yourself, as well as respectful of other people's um, experiences, understandings, and knowledge. I feel like there's a lot of people who just say, look, It's either my way or the highway. If you don't agree with it, all right, you're the racist, you're the bigot, you're ignorant, get yourself educated. And that happens a lot. Yeah, I could not agree more. I completely agree. I think there's so much danger in that polarization. And even when, you know, the US election was happening whenever, I think it was the 2016 election and it was like 50% on each side, 50-50 pretty much. And I remember thinking that is surely not okay. Like that is 
not right to have a nation that's supposed to be you know a community united all of this kind of stuff to have it almost an exact 50 50 split is such a scary Mm. concept and so much of what you were saying made me think about how there is so much patience required and that skill set being able to communicate effectively so that we have what is essentially empathy on both sides because in yeah. order to communicate effectively, for you to communicate your story effectively and to help people reduce their bias around refugees and other topics that you spoke about, like you also had to have empathy for the people who mm. didn't like refugees or whatever and, and had all this bias, which isn't an 100%. easy thing for you to do either. You know, you had to have that understanding or that, yeah, yeah, like you said, not, yeah, just the empathy. <laughs> for a point of view that you don't even share. And I think if more yeah. people were able to, to do that, then maybe we could have a lot more productive discussions. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> exactly. That's a really good point. I feel like it's often often the case when we point to American examples, and it's my fault for bringing it up, <laughs> you know, we often point to American examples as, as the extreme, right? We say, man, they're so divided, this, that, and the other. And like I mentioned, there's some element of truth to that. But like you mentioned before earlier, we never get the full story, right? So there's a lot more unity there than there is division, but obviously it's a lot more attractive to kind of point at the extremes and say, this is where everybody stands on. The extreme far left who nobody likes and the extreme far right who nobody likes. A lot of people are just right in the middle where they kind of dabble this way and that way. And, you know, to be honest, the two-party system over there is just not made for any kind of productive politics but that's a whole another conversation we're the same elements here in new zealand you know where you know we all saw i was just down the road during the um here in wellington right during those uh whatever you want to call it the riot at the capitol here our version of 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 the storming of the capitol um and those people represent uh, uh, a very unhinged extremist part a minority that not many people kind of, um, you know, want to associate themselves with, Mm. myself included. But it was so frustrating that some of the points that they, you know, resonated with the vast majority of Kiwis were just completely kind of pushed away or rejected as, um, you know, I I don't know what you want to call it, extremist or whatever, out of line, that it just completely kind of disregarded them. And that's a segment of society that exists. So I'll, I'll kind of round off exactly where I'm coming from here. I did a master's in security studies at Georgetown University. Security studies, you know, when my little brother asked me, he said, bro, what are you studying? I jokingly said, I'm going to study to be a trained bodyguard. <laughs> but security studies is the study of national and international security threats to a nation. So it could be a global pandemic. It could be a war with China. It could be economic warfare. It could be, in my case, what I studied was domestic terrorism. Right? I, I chose to focus on that because, you know, I was just down the road when the March 15th shootings happened. And I wanted to understand what elements inspires someone to go and commit an act of terrorism. So national domestic terrorism One of the main things you learn when you study national security threats and especially domestic terrorism is that there are elements of society, the far extreme, who will always be present, right? 
whether you want to call it the far right, the far left, whatever you want to call it, anti-government, pro-government, whatever. They exist in every society, whether it's a couple of hundred people or a couple of dozen people or a few million people, right? They exist. And so our role as society is, do we choose to ignore them and banish them and just completely disregard their opinion as conspiracy or lunacy or um, just not worth even listening to, right? Which is sadly the way the media would like to kind of push and just completely get them out of society. Is that the way we treat them? Or do we kind of give them a bit of space, listen to what they're coming from, and obviously maybe they're not eloquent enough in, in, in verbalizing what they think, but maybe kind of see where they're at least they're coming from, right? And so, again, I don't want to sound like a fucking apologist for domestic terrorists and, and far-right extremists, but you can see academically, right, where I'm coming from here. And so when it comes to the quality of our debates, when it comes to the quality of our media coverage, when it comes to the way we kind of shove people from the right and the left to the far extremes and paint a picture of them, you have to be very, very careful because what that does is it forces people to dig their heels in even more. Mm. And then people are going to retrench themselves and go deeper and deeper into their own rabbit hole and they start living on these internet chat forums where they're surrounded by their own echo chambers and it just gets more and more dangerous from there, right? Mm. So that's a far kind of... Uh, segue and segue into your question about just being a bit more empathetic even if you don't agree with someone at least giving them the time to just kind of listen in see where they're coming from try to understand but also equally try not to push someone away into Mm. the edges Mm. yeah it's something I've been trying to work on very consciously is that exactly because I I don't want to I don't want to live somewhere where people are constantly pushing against one another mm. and seeing right and wrong is so black and white and there's never any mm-hmm. context within that or movement or gray space. Like I like to believe that right and mm. wrong a lot of the time hardly exists. We can't always be all on one side or the other. There's details around those situations and the causes for those situations. There's always different reasons and we always have a lack of understanding full understanding around that so it's something I've been consciously trying to work on myself and thinking about your example I guess something for me personally I was having a conversation with someone about that time when there was a lot of unrest through COVID and people um it, it almost felt like there was this two sides that was you were pro-vax or you were anti-vax. And that was mm, like the main conversation. Mm. And I remember, yeah. you know, thinking back then that I was someone who was quite open to other people's perspectives, but I consciously remember and embarrassing to say now, but I remember thinking like, Oh my God, people who are anti-vax are just selfish and they're not the thinking worst. about, yeah, the greater good of the people yeah. and survival and all this kind of thing. And I was reflecting on that thought recently and I was like, oh my God, that's so not this that's so not an accurate reflection of the person mm-hmm. I want to be, what I actually yeah. believe, and probably what those people believe either, because I was associating, say you didn't want to get the vaccine with you mm-hmm. were, as you say, an extremist or on this one side, and I was on that's this right. other side. And it really made me think like, wow, as much as you can think that you're someone that would do this one thing or that one thing, there's still that subconscious bias that you need to try and be aware of that you might have. And 
mm-hmm. for me, like going forward, I I use that example as like a reminder to myself of how you can get so wrapped up in a time when there's fear, when there's desperation that you kind of like cling to this point of view because that's sort of the control and the safety that you feel in the situation. Like for me, maybe Mm. it was getting vaccinated or believing in vaccinations was like, okay, this is like the point of view that to me feels like the control and the, the opposite to the fear and the unrest and the craziness that seems to be going on over here, but so much influences that perspective. Like you said, the media, et cetera, and having, there was a lack of empathy for me in that situation and what I needed to do was try to recognize that well my experience isn't the only one my perspective isn't isn't the only one but also right and wrong is contextual and different people have different point of views as a result of their own experience and I won't I can't understand every experience and that was like a really important lesson I think for me to actually recognize that and it does make me think about you know, your mention of the Christchurch mosque attacks. And you mentioned this in the book because you were obviously living in Christchurch at that time. You drove a man and his niece who were both victims mm. of this this event mm. home that day, the day it happened. And mm. this part of the book really resonated with me because as I had just mentioned, this is something, you know, I'm working on is that empathy. And this man said to you, you drove him home and he said that he'd already forgiven the gunman because he didn't want to yep. hold this hate in his heart. Like, that's right. How, what did you think of that when he said that to you? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, to, to round off your point, I think it takes, uh, it takes a bit of strength to react, but it takes a lot more strength to just, uh, hold off. Mm. You know, mm. when you see someone in your face shouting and screaming that, you know, do this, do that. Um, mm. Very easy to react in that moment, but a lot harder to just hold off, think about it, internalize it, and then come back with a bit of patience and strategy, right? Um, and your example of, of uh, Farid, Farid Ahmad, the guy who uh, was at there at the shootings. So for context, you know, on the day of the shooting, right, I think it was a Friday lunchtime, I was just down the road when I got that alert that there was a attack and then a couple of minutes later an attack at the mosque and you know kind of ran down there because I knew that there would be people at that particular mosque that I knew members of my community people I played football with um, guys that I knew who attended that mosque regularly and went there and and the shootings by then had had you know as we found out later the shoot had gone on to a second site and all of the victims um you know, people who were in the building at the time who might have been injured, who might have ran for cover and all of that, they were now starting to emerge out of the bushes, out of the car parks, from between buildings, you know, in all sorts of shapes, right? Hysterical, bleeding, injured, you know, able-bodied, all of that. And one of the guys was <clears throat> a guy in a wheelchair. His name was Farid, Farid Ahmad. You guys can Google him and, and, and read about his story, uh, who's, by the way, has just written a book called Husna's Story, um, Husna is his wife, who was tragically killed in that mosque attack. Mm. Um, it's available, uh, you know, at all good bookstores. Amazing. So Farid, <clears throat> Farid was uh, there waiting um, behind the police cordon uh, because he's waiting for his wife. See, what had happened was he was in a wheelchair, and um, during the and he was in the men's room, I believe. Uh, sorry, in the men's part of the mosque during the attack, and he had somehow managed to duck for cover and he was fine and his wife had pushed him out of the mosque 
And then she'd gone in to go and get more people out. And then going back in, sadly, she had been killed. And so someone had wheeled him out of the mosque and he was there outside the police court and waiting to hear back about his wife. And uh, I was there standing right next to him talking when he got the phone call that, you know, his wife had been killed. And he, it was just the most powerful moment for me personally, standing next to a man who's, you know, wife of, I don't know, 40 odd years, had he just received the news. It was like earth shattering for me. And I was there second, secondarily, indirectly affected. I was just, I was, I felt my knees shake, I almost crumble to the ground for this man who I didn't even know. And then, you know, he had all the energy that he had was like, can you please take me home? So, you know, I, I put him in, in, in the car and then we drove to his home. He didn't say much. Um, and I recall the conversation in the book. Basically, you know, he talked along the lines of forgiveness. I asked him about how he'd, he'd you know, trying to <laughs> change conversation. Here I am. I said, hey, man, how'd you end up in a wheelchair? And he told me the story, you know, that um, he was in Nelson a few, I think a few, a few years back and he'd been killed by a drunk, he'd, sorry, he'd been struck by a drunk driver and basically just ran over um, and he'd lost his, his, his legs. And he said, that experience, he said, I held resentment and anger for years. I was angry at God. I was angry at the driver. I was angry at myself. I was angry at everybody about why my legs had been taken away from me. And it's only when I learned to let that go that I kind of understood the power of forgiveness about how holding anger and hate in your heart is like holding a stone in your throat constantly. And it's about forgiveness. And he's a deeply religious man, too. And I think that helps a lot. You know, very meditative, deeply religious. And he said, that has helped me navigate this world. And now, literally, this was probably less than an hour after he'd found out that his wife was killed. By the time he reached his home, he said, look, I've, I've learned to forgive that man for what he's done. He's taken my wife away. But that guy holds a lot of hate in his heart. And he'll have to hold that for the rest of his life. And I, and I forgive him because I don't want to hold another stone in my throat. And I thought, holy, that's insane, because I definitely would not have the patience and the courage to do that, you know? So that's a very extreme example, right, of, of just learning to turn the other cheek, of learning patience and forgiveness, even, even when you don't want to, because mm. I definitely don't want to, right? If, 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 uh, you know, God forbid, a member of my family or my loved one had just been killed in that way. I'd want to burn the whole world down, right? But this guy had learned to forgive, and it was incredible. It was the that power. Me, like I mentioned before, I was there indirectly. I was a secondary character in that part of that story, and I learned so much from that moment. Um, whether I learned to apply that is another matter, but it's it was just insanely powerful. Like I mentioned. A quite an extreme example, but just a little bit here and there can go a long way. And then I was there in the States for two years where I kind of saw just the, the, <clears throat> the level of conversation and the quality of conversation that was happening over there and realizing how a bit of empathy, a bit of understanding can go a long, long way. And we can, if we can apply that on a day-to-day -day basis, I think we'll be in a better shape. Mm. Thank you for sharing the full context of that story because I think it's so important. Um, a very courageous example of mm. a lot of strength, like a lot of strength yeah. too. Yeah.
have that empathy because as you said earlier it's uh, it's easy to be angry about those things it's natural to be angry about those things 100%. um mm. but to then decide and make that conscious choice that you are going to forgive this person or have empathy for them or move on so that to quote him you don't have another stone in your throat is yeah. very brave for sure yeah yeah it was it was definitely a learning moment for me um you know it's, it's it impacted me quite a lot and i try and apply it definitely fail more times than i am successful but you know having that little bit of just kind of hold back listen in even when you don't want to even when your natural instinct is to shout just just listen in see where they're coming from you don't have to accept it mm. but at least giving them the time and space to kind of uh voice out what they're thinking and then try and respond strategically rather than just kind of shouting back in their face because like i mentioned people people are never going to be coming to the to the table if that's that's the reaction right mm, there's so a learning in. moment for me personally Mm, yeah I want to talk about your parents because mm. they were extremely central to this story and there were a lot of parts where I was reading about your dad um, and he was always quite open with you as a family unit he was always quite it seemed as if he was quite honest about what you were going to do next and you know what the family where the family was going to be moving um, was that kind of your recollection of the experience that he would always, you know, kind of address you guys as a family and this is what we're going to do next and that's how you moved forward with things? It's a good question. I think my mum and dad are the central heroes of, of both my life, uh, the book, and, and, and will continue to be. Mm. They had uh, incredibly tough decisions to make along the way, some of which was were made for them. Now, um, here's a wee plug for myself, and I promise I'll answer your question. Uh, I'm on a, <laughs> I'm signed up as a as a speaking agent with Celebrity Speakers. So shout outs to you guys who are going to book me in after listening to this podcast. Mm. Um, <laughs> so when I tell this story, when I tell my story, I always try to frame it in two two different frames, focusing on things that are within and outside of your control. And also decisions that you get to make versus decisions that are made for you. So, and I'll, and I'll talk about that second part. So if you take a few steps back, here we are living in our little village in Afghanistan and war arrives to our country. War arrives to our village that we've lived for for multiple generations. We've got a pretty um, decent life, you know, patch of land. We've got, uh, you know, we farm our land hopefully make enough money to feed us through the winter. Any excess would be sold at the local markets. We have a role in our community. It's only a village of about four and a half thousand people. We have a sense of security, a dignity. We know who we are. We've lived this way. We've got, we're, we're happy, right? It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. We don't have drinking water coming out of the tap. We don't have electricity at the switch of a button. You know, it was incredibly tough. But at least we had all of those things that make worth life worth living, right? Dignity, security, safety, and a role in our community. And then war arrives to our country, the Taliban, right? And we get uprooted, right? We have no control over that, right? No control. A decision was made for us is how I say it, right? Where well, we had to leave. 
you know, and dad kind of put that into gear. He was the one who said, look, we just have to leave. Let's just get out. We'll go over to Pakistan and then we'll try and figure out where to go from there. And then we're in this refugee camp in Pakistan where your two decisions are wait it out and hope that the situation in your home country improves so you can head back and maybe press restart on your life or wait it out and hope that you might be one of the very few, the 0.1% of refugees who are successfully resettled overseas, right? Both of which have unending timelines. Who knows when or if the situation in Afghanistan will improve for us to go back, right? Apply that to Syria. 2011, civil war kicks off. 12 years later, people are still living in refugee camps in Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon, just waiting to head back. Who knows when or if they might go back? Think about Ukraine, all of those Ukrainians who are now living in Poland and elsewhere waiting to head back, right? When they left 18 months ago, they thought, man, we might be back next month. And now 18 months later, they're still living out in Poland or wherever else they are. So that's the obvious reality. When or if, you have no idea. Or you could be one of the 0.1% who might be resettled. Or you could be part of the 99.9% who miss out on overseas resettlement. So again, a decision that is made for you forces completely outside of your control so dad says look i've got you know my wife i've got my kids all of whom are less than 15 years old i've got to do something as the head of the household it's on me is to make a decision to kick down some doors and try to get some agency in my life to try and impact where my life is headed and my family's life is headed which is why he decides to go on the australia route right and then the reasons for that are obviously outlined in the book so long, long story short, to come back to your question, there are decisions that are made for us, forces outside of our control that we have no bearing on whatsoever. In my case, you know, it was civil war, it was conflict, it was hunger, and it was being uprooted and being given stateless, right? For many listeners of this podcast, obviously, they'll never have to go through a civil war or all that kind of stuff. But they'll go through very similar elements, forces outside of their control, whether it's their health that gives up, whether it's a relationship, whether it's family dramas, whether it's a business issue, financial, whatever. Forces outside of your control that perhaps you have no kind of, you know, impact on. So then it's on you to then focus on things within your control. Focus your time and energy on those things which you can have a little bit of impact on, which hopefully snowballs into a bigger bigger impact down the road. And so my dad is the head of our household. You know, there were decisions that were made for him. And then there were decisions that he made for himself out of sheer frustration or courage or bravery. And, um, you know, he's learned to live with the consequences of that. Not Not all of which are good, by the way. You know, thankfully, our life has ended up remarkably well. We are one of the very few to be resettled in New Zealand and life for us has been incredibly rewarding. Uh, but then there are others who are just at the mercy, you know, living in refugee camps for multiple generations, years upon years upon years. And that too is their reality. So to answer your question, you know, there's, I, I consider myself eternally grateful about how our life has ended up because I have seen what it could have been like, right? What, what our life would have been like. I've been, been back to Afghanistan twice, once in 2012, once in 2017. Both times I went back, I was just more and more grateful about the life we live in New Zealand because I, I saw 
what my future could have looked like. Assuming we were still alive, assuming we weren't killed in some attack or some roadside blast or whatever, assuming I had all of my limbs because I didn't step on a landmine, assuming I was still kind of active and able to be educated because I hadn't fallen to this massive heroin epidemic that's ravaging across Austra uh, across um, Afghanistan. At best, I'd be some laborer, right? Or, or, you know, a soldier in the Afghan National Army going there for, you know, just for the three meals a day. Or I'd be one of the many thousands of Afghans who are packing up and trying to go into neighboring Iran or maybe in the Gulf states or whatever, just laboring away, earning some money so I can send back home. That was my prospects as an able-bodied male, assuming I made it out of um, my village in one piece. So once you kind of had that sense of perspective, you kind of learn to learn to apply some gratitude and some humility and and focus on the things within your control. So that's a long winded way of saying I'm incredibly grateful for the decisions that my dad made for us. And that gives me a bit of fuel and resolve to get over the, the, the obstacles that fall across my path. Mm. When you think about your dad and your mum, you know, as individual people, how do you see like who they are play into the person that you are today? Yeah, they're, they're definitely, definitely my, my heroes, you know, it's weird. Um, the, the listeners of this podcast who are maybe immigrants or second generation New Zealanders, um, they'll understand exactly what I'm saying when I say, Sometimes I feel like we live in two different worlds, you know, my parents and I. There's a generational gap there. I consider myself a New Zealander through and through, right? I speak Farsi, our mother tongue at home. I love Afghan food. You know, I love that part of my culture. We celebrate Afghan holidays and, and so on. But at the end of the day, I, I, I'm definitely much more of a New Zealander than I am an Afghan. Whereas I feel like my, my parents and people of their generation they are Afghans living in New Zealand. They're a lot more in touch with their birth identity. And a lot of immigrants and second generation listeners of the podcast will know exactly what I mean. Maybe their English isn't that strong. So it's very hard to kind of conversate and talk at a deeper level. Um, and so on the one hand, I feel like we live in two very, very different worlds. Their childhood and upbringing and their formative experiences in Afghanistan or very different to my childhood and upbringing here in New Zealand. So there's some things that they just absolutely cannot relate to at all, no matter which words I use, no matter how many examples I use, they'll just never get it. And that's regardless of which culture you come from, Afghanistan, Vietnam, right, Somalia, wherever, that generational gap will always be there. And it's just the reality of, of growing up as an immigrant uh, in a foreign country. And I follow so many Instagram pages where I'm just like, man, the guy in this is Somalian, but I know exactly what he's talking about, you know. Mm. But to your point, there are so many things that I'm eternally grateful for that my parents have passed on to me, you know, work ethic um, and appreciation of your culture. And actually living in between two different worlds is incredibly enriching. It gives me enormous perspective. Um, listening to my dad's stories of what he was up to at my age is like listening to a whole nother world unfold. Um, and that makes me uh, richer as a person. So 
looking at our life, uh, everything that we have right now with our family business, with me and what I'm up to and what my siblings are up to, at the end of the day, all of that is credited to the courage and bravery of my mum and dad in bringing us over to New Zealand um, and because that's where it all started from. So we never lose touch of that. And so that's that's gives us a lot of fuel and motivation. Just keep keep pushing, keep persevering, and doing uh, bigger and better things. Mm. Yeah, and that message really comes through within the book. They're both obviously incredible people. I think you know that concept of identity can be extremely complicated. And you had mm. mentioned when you arrived in your new home, which was going to be Christchurch, your street yeah. was incredibly diverse. You know, you hadn't been surrounded by anyone who didn't really look like you before. And I think often mm. in life, you know, we can tend to hesitate to develop relationships with people who don't speak the same language as us think like us and even if these things are just subconscious you know we at, when we're younger we're like unsure how to deal with that like do you remember feeling a little bit hesitant how did those feelings develop I think the topic of topic of identity is something that is just incredibly incredibly um, complex and simple at the same time. When I talk about living on the fence between two different worlds, uh, listeners of this podcast, regardless of their cultural background, will understand exactly what I mean by that. Um, and that's how simple it is. But at the same time, it's so complex, right? Your identity, uh, my identity as um, a young Afghan New Zealander um, is is layered upon layered, you know, that my experiences as a male is different to a young Afghan New Zealander female, right? Because they wear a headscarf mm -hmm. and that has all sorts of connotations on it. So sometimes when I'm kind of uh, overly gl gl glowing or positive in my um, recollections of my upbringing in New Zealand, which was overall very, very positive, right? I grew up in a street um, with Richie Moonga, right? I taught him how to play rugby and look where he's ended up, right? So we've done pretty well there. Uh, <laughs> so my childhood so well. in New Zealand, yeah, my childhood in New Zealand was incredibly positive. Uh, you know, if you look at me, I'll probably pass off as Maori, Samoan, Pacific Islander of some sort. I've got no accent. Um, I was pretty big. I was always the sporty kid, um, able-bodied, you know, very easy to make friends with. Um, and so... But then if you get maybe, I don't know, uh, a young girl wearing a headscarf, um, their experience might be very, very different, especially if they've got an accent, especially if they've got darker skin mm. and they're wearing a headscarf on top and maybe they're put into a school or a community where they're, they're not very um, uh, positively uh, embraced. Mm. I swear their story would not be as positive, right? So my story of identity is very, very unique to me. And no one else will be able to relate to that to the same extent. Um, so that's why I dedicated a whole chapter on, it, on the book about trying to explain exactly what it is. Mm. Um, there are huge similarities, right? Um, whether you could replace the word Afghanistan with all of those other countries that I mentioned, and it would be equally, equally relevant. But at the same time, there are so many layers to it. Um, if you were a bit older, I arrived here as a little kid. If you arrived here as a late teenager and you only got maybe one year of school before you had to go to uni or into the workforce, 
your development and your ability to make friends and all of your formative experiences would be very, very different to someone like me and my siblings who went through primary, intermediate, high school, uni, and so on. So um, long story short, I think in New Zealand, our conceptual conceptualization of identity is both very simple and very complex. What I mean by that is we're a very young country, we're very small, we're a village of, you know, just under 5 million people. And so our ability to have a conversation is very, very simple. Um, on the one hand, look, not many people like to rock the boat. Some people like to put some ideas forward. And to be honest, 90% of the Kiwis actually listen in or that they're not too frustrated by it. There are a few people on the left and right who always like to voice their opinions, but most people are in the middle. They don't get too fussed by it. You try and have the same topic of conversation in, in America and it's 50 different countries, all with tens of millions of people each trying to understand one thing. No wonder it's on a whole another level, right? No wonder they, their conception of identity is very, very different. So that's where a bit of understanding and empathy comes from, right? Uh, but I love it, though. I mean, I'm in the incredibly fortunate position right now where uh, at BFT Wellington Central, um, you know, our gym here in Central Wellington, uh, I get just over 300 people walk through my doors every day to attend our group fitness classes. And if I'm on a good day, I'll be coaching every class. Everyone that walks through that door, I know them by their first and last name. I know how many classes they've done. I know... If they've had a good day or bad day, I've seen their Instagram stories, what they've been up to. Every one of those people walk in with their own baggage. They're in a good state, bad state. They're injured. They've had an awesome day at work. They've just been fired, whatever. Uh, but the awesome thing about what we have is that they leave all of that at the door and then they have an incredible time and then they leave. What I mean by that, apart from plugging in my gym, all you guys in Central Wellington, make sure you come in for a trial. Apart from plugging in my gym, the reason I mention that is that there's a lot of unity there too. So people walk in, they look different. Some people are fit. Some people love lifting hundreds of kilos. Shout out to Tom, who's currently got our deadlift record. He told me to mention that. Um, so, that. so you've got people of all different abilities walking in through that door. But for one hour... None of that matters. Everyone's working towards the goal. Everyone's going, sticking to the plan. Everyone's just trying to go station to station, do the work. And after one hour, they leave and then they're pretty happy. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of differences, but also quite a lot that just kind of unites us as well. Mm. Damn, that was a good example. If that if we don't use that as a pitch for the gym, I don't know what works well. Right? Make sure you keep that in the podcast, all right? Absolutely. I'll send it to you. Clip it out. <laughs> <laughs> so leading off from that incredible clip that you've just given us for your gym everyone go and get your free trial going um there's just too many questions for me to to ask you and so many little parts of the story that I'm never going to touch on because I'd need probably another 10 hours to get through everything I'd want to talk to you about but I want to cover these last two things and that is you know, the UNHCR reports less than 1% of refugees are successful in their resettlement application. You spoke about 0.1%, you know, being that way. This has pretty much stayed the same since the time that you had said it. Like, why is this? How do you look at progress happening in that area? That's a really good question. Look, um, I guess to understand it, um, 
it's good to kind of have a look back and see how the whole system was set up. So the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, was set up in the aftermath of World War II to help um, re-establish all of those tens of millions of displaced peoples uh, in Europe. As we know, World War II, you know, entire cities and countries were decimated. They had tens of millions of homeless people basically all across Europe, and they needed a place to stay. And the UN Refugee Agency was set up to kind of help relocate these people both within Europe for the most part, but also outside Europe to those countries that could offer them homes, right? Mostly Canada, right? The United States, Australia, and so on. And that's what that was his primary purpose, just help re- relocate these people who are obviously had to escape the war. And in the years since, in the decades since, they've kind of moved on and, and helped with other um, conflicts around the world. But what has happened in that time is that the number of people requiring resettlement has increased due to conflict, but also due to sheer impact of climate change, right? If you get all of these countries in sub-Saharan Africa, as an example, you know, mega droughts, which last for years, mean that they literally have to pack up and leave and go somewhere else to have a life, as well as civil conflict, human man-made, both of which are man-made. Um, and, but also the number of places available for resettlement from host countries has decreased. In the early years, countries wanting were very open and say, look, we'll, we'll take these people on, to now saying, look, we've got a very, very tight uh, quota of people that we can fit. So more people, but less spots. On the other hand, though, I can't finish off this story without kind of pointing out something blatantly obvious. Uh, where the victims of conflict are, you know, English-speaking, white, able-bodied, they're very much embraced by other host countries. Um, but where the, conf- the victims are maybe non-white, maybe don't speak English, maybe have a different cultural background, uh, they have a much harder time, and none more so than in the last 18 months when you look at the, the world's response to the Ukrainian crisis, when they had to flee their country and go into neighboring, you know, Poland and Germany and elsewhere, they were embraced. People were literally saying, look, come through, <laughs> you know, I'll take you guys on. Here's a house, here's some money, here's a job, etc." And then uh, you get the Syrians and it's like, no thanks, you know, put up a wall, put up a border, send the army over, push them away. It's not our problem. So... That's a, a clear black and white in, in the reaction, right, that you have to people. I guess the reasons for that are twofold. One, people are comfortable with the familiar. Look, if they look like us, maybe they're also mostly Christian. Maybe they speak English and, I guess, Ukraine slash Germany. Maybe there's a few cultural similarities that we find. And to be honest, there are elements of truth to that, there are practical truths that are like, okay, well, these guys will be able to fit in pretty well. Um, but at the same time, I think the misconceptions around them are very wrong. So you look at Syria as an example, the people fleeing Syria are exactly the same. You know, they have a higher standard of living over there than many parts of Eastern Europe. These guys are educated, right? They speak English, they speak multiple languages, but in the minds of uh, many people over there, 
in Europe, they, they're all painted the same. They're all painted the same. These guys are illiterate, that they have, they'll have no place in our society, that they can't contribute. And so it's just a matter of just kind of changing that perspective, changing that perspective, yeah. So that's the sad reality of it. On a New Zealand context, given our place in the world, we'll never have to worry about people trying to get to New Zealand. Um, but the, the reality of it is that in the coming decades, we have to put ourselves in this situation. If, if a boatload of like, you know, islanders from the Pacific Islands, from low-lying countries, you know, because the islands are getting flooded and going underwater, if they try to arrive to New Zealand, um, it's exactly the same thing, right? Do we offer them a home and say, look, welcome to New Zealand, you know, here's, here's how much assistance we can provide? Or is it going to be a case of, um, you know, turn them away? And that's, you know, that's going to be the reality in the next few years. It's a big job, isn't it, really, to like rework the system. And I suppose there's so many psychological elements as well as like you can't just look at the practical elements of how a system works. It's about how people are thinking and of who these people actually are. And I suppose in a lot of ways like dehumanizing them um, as well, which leads to these biases and these perspectives that aren't based on any truth and then don't contribute to a better practical system of how these things work Mm -hmm. exactly exactly i think yeah it it all comes back to our perceptions of of the people that are seeking seeking asylum in new zealand or elsewhere you know is it are they going to you look at them right and it's like exactly what uh what happens when you look at refugees we look at them in terms of monetary cost. Not going to lie, my first job out of the out of university was I worked at Treasury right here in Wellington on the terrace for almost three years. And we looked at everything with a dollar value attached to it. Mm. Uh, so you look at them at monetary cost. Are these guys going to be a burden on the taxpayer? Are these guys going to need welfare and education and housing and all of those expensive things? Um, and the answer is very much so yes, in more cases than not, definitely. Personal example, right? Many of the Tampa communities and so on, like I mentioned, right, we needed a lot of help and much of that was financial. We needed housing, we needed education, we needed healthcare, we needed, you know, uh, ESOL programs and after-school programs to get us up to speed. So do you look at that as a net cost, like these guys are just going to be a, a burden on the taxpayer, or do you look as a, an as an investment? You know, we look at where the Tampa communities are now, um, twenty years on, and almost every one of them are business owners. They are in the trades. They are qualified. They are nurses and builders. And in my case, our family business, Kiwi Car Removals, here in in Lower Hutt in Wellington. You know, we employ a team of just over twenty. And it's, it turns over tens of millions of dollars a year. So we needed help in the beginning. But I'd say we have returned back more in our fair share of income tax than in all of the years of our welfare checks that we collected in those time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one way to look at it. How much are these people going to be costing? And sadly, that, that taints the conversation a lot especially on talkback radio. Should New Zealand accept 750 or 1,500 refugees a year? Should we double the quota? And nine times out of 10, 
the number one comment that you get from people is saying, well, you know, they're going to cost too much. We have a budget crisis. The government doesn't have enough money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, look, working at the Treasury, the government always has money, right? If it wants to, the government always has money. But sadly, uh, that's only half of the story, right? It always talks about cost rather than investment. And to be honest, I'm, I'm very much pro more and more people are being resettled to New Zealand, whether it's on the skilled visa pathways, whether it's a more generous refugee quota, uh, just more people coming to New Zealand will be a good thing to this country. Mm. Thank you for that perspective and, and to round up and not take up too much more of your day. Um, yeah. You know, what is the one takeaway that you want the readers of the book or the listeners of this podcast to remember? Um, I think that that conversation we had on empathy is pretty, pretty powerful. Um, you know, the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes. You don't have to agree with them, but just actually taking the patience and the time to just listen in. Even if you don't agree, even if you don't fully understand it, giving them time of day, um, because you might learn something, right? It might expose a few a few holes in your own um in your own uh understanding of the world. Mm. And also for them to go buy my book, right? So that'll be always good if that happens. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with the the second one probably more so. Um, Yeah, completely. Um, And I think a part of that is not having assumptions about what something is and what you believe, Mm. but being open to there being more than than one answer. So thank you, Abbas, so much for your time. You know, there are so many parts of this story that, I couldn't cover in this episode, as I said, so many shifts, upsets, happy moments. Um, There were times this book left me laughing more often than not, also crying in multiple parts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you said earlier that people listening might think you're arrogant, but in my perspective, that's not arrogance. That's the internal strength as a reflection of like your story and your perspective. And I think it's just amazing to see and a real privilege that I get the chance to discuss what happened within this book and within your experience and your families and so many other families' experiences today. So thank you, Abbas. Truly, it really means heaps to have you here. Thank you so much for listening, team, and um, appreciate you giving me the platform, Sarah. I think this is an awesome project. I hope more and more people listen. And um, it's always a pleasure. I feel like when you give, when you take an hour of someone's time, you know, listeners of this podcast are probably plugged in, on the way to work or I don't know if you listen to podcasts at the gym the way I do. Um, I hope that in that hour that you take away, uh, you also give back. And so I hope listeners have taken away something um, from this conversation as well. So thank you, team. No, thank you. And I'll leave the links to everything we've spoken about below, guys. The book, the gym, the multiple different other things. (laughs) So yeah, get amongst. Thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The One Up Project. If you want to find more stuff just like this, check out our other apps or follow us at The One Up Project on Instagram or TikTok. See you there.